Welcome to Cogniz Education Untapped Podcast, the show where we bring you experts and leading practitioners in the field of education. Welcome to Education Untapped. Today, we are delighted to have some of the Cognitive Safeguarding team with us uh, to share their expertise on the subject of safeguarding on residential educational visits. We have Outdoor Education Advisor, Mick Bradshaw. Uh, we have the Safeguarding Team Manager, Hayley Cameron. And we also have Jill Bush, who works in Children's First Contact Service, or sometimes known as the MASH. And myself, Steve Welding, who's the Education e-safety advisor. As we go on, first of all, what we're going to do, we're all going to do a quick introduction of ourselves on there because we've all come from very different backgrounds. So we're going to ask each one of us to introduce themselves briefly. Firstly, Hayley. Hi everyone. So I qualified as a teacher in 2005 and I've worked in Sutton and Croydon schools since then. I've been a designated safeguarding lead since 2008 um, I was appointed as deputy head teacher for safeguarding and pastoral care in 2015 before going on to become acting head of school in 2018. I then became director of safeguarding for the same primary academy trust. But since May 2020, I've been education safeguarding manager at Cognus. I've also recently completed a master's degree in advanced child protection. Thank you for that, Hayley. So, as we can see, Hayley comes from uh, sort of teaching and a leadership background in primary schools uh, and has a wealth of safeguarding experience. Mick, perhaps you could tell us a bit about your background now. Yes, thanks, Steve. Uh, so before becoming a qualified teacher, I worked in outdoor education and taught outdoor activities and environmental studies in a residential outdoor centre. Uh, I then trained and qualified as a second secondary geography teacher. Uh, but then spent uh, the next 10 years or so working in a youth service and running outdoor education activities and courses, which included lots of residential trips and expeditions all over the UK and very occasionally overseas too. I then worked uh, in secondary schools teaching geography, PSHE and on a BTEC public services course. And since 2003 have been an outdoor education advisor initially working in Sutton, but now working at Cognos Limited and supporting schools across a number of southwest London boroughs, including Sutton. Oh, thanks for that, Mick. Again, a wealth of experience in the education sector. Jill, perhaps you could tell us something about your background and experience. Hi, everybody. Um, as I say, my name's Jill Bush, and I am actually a retired detective sergeant um, within the Metropolitan Police. I did 30 years um, service with them and for the last five years I actually worked at the local police station uh, dealing with missing persons, sex offenders management and domestic violence unit and of course in all those roles I had to work quite closely with social care. 
For the last seven years, I have worked within what's known now as the Children's First Contact Service, but used to be known as the MASH, working with social care in all aspects and helping schools currently um, with referral questions. Thank you for that. Steve, now we've all introduced ourselves, perhaps you could tell us something about your background and your experience too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I've been a member of the Cognitive Safeguarding Team for, I think, nearly seven years now. I have the title of being the Education and Safety Advisor. And all that means is that I go into schools in Sutton to deliver online safety workshops uh, for students, both in primary and secondary schools, for staff uh, and for parents as well. As my role developed, though, I, I now provide all staff safeguarding training and the prevention radicalisation workshops for all our schools and for the local authority. Previously, before I joined Cognis, I was also in the Metropolitan Police. I was a detective for about 22 years, investigating serious crime uh, around sort of the South London boroughs. But during the last few years of my service, I specialised in the risk management of convicted sex offenders who live in the community. And this is where I began to work with different agencies and working within a, a safeguarding environment. So that's kind of where my background has come from. So as you can see, we all come, you know, and uh, from from different areas, and we all have that input uh, into our safeguarding team. I'm just going to ask quick a first question now. Uh, so now that you've heard about uh, all our experiences, we're going to focus on residential visits and what professionals in school need to know or consider when planning a, and leading this type of visit. Firstly, Mick. Could you explain why children staying away from home on an overnight or residential visit is so worthwhile? Yes, I, I think it's really important that we actually think about this before we go on to look at some of the other questions we're going to try and answer today. But all educational visits can have lots of benefits, but overnight stays give children the opportunity to stay away from home. Uh, and sometimes that's for the very first time. And so as they do that, they can develop greater independence, for example, with younger children, even everyday tasks like deciding what to wear and take with them each day. So they're dressed appropriately for their activities and the weather conditions. Uh, but with older children, there might be periods of time when they're not directly supervised by staff. So they also have to learn to keep themselves safe and act responsibly, sometimes in, in very unfamiliar places and environments too. So that there are lots of social benefits and opportunities to develop things like environmental awareness, but visits are usually closely linked to the curriculum and, and staying away overnight means that it's possible to pack in much more than can be fitted into a day visit and to travel to uh, different places much further away from home uh, than you can in the space of a day too. Yeah, thanks for that Mick. So. Uh... So why should professionals in schools be considering safeguarding so carefully when planning and leading visits? Well, I think the first thing to emphasise here is that the safeguarding responsibilities that we have for children when they're at school, they, these all apply when children are on educational visits too. But when those visits include an overnight stay, then there are some additional aspects that schools need to consider. So school staff and children spend a much longer period of time together than they do normally when they're on an overnight stay. And staff take on additional responsibilities that they don't normally have in school. And the relationships between children and their peers, their school friends, and between them and the school staff can be very different to when they're in school too. 
So these things can mean there's a greater likelihood perhaps that staff can notice something untoward, that children can perhaps disclose something concerning to their friends or to the staff too. And there are some things that staff need to be aware of that they don't usually have to consider when they're teaching in the school environment on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, thanks for that, Mick. I'm just going to move on to Hayley. So Hayley, perhaps you could explain what are some of the specifics that schools should be thinking about when they're planning overnight visits? Thanks, Steve. Um, I think the, the first thing to consider is the nature of the children that will be participating in the, the trip. Um, what do we already know about them that's relevant and that we may need to plan for or be aware of? This means considering any medical needs that they might have and any additional care that those conditions might need if they are away from home overnight. Medical um, information is usually kept by schools, so we can refer to that. But we should also be checking that it's up to date and that nothing significant has changed. It's important that obviously in terms of medication, we take anything with us um, on the visit that needs to be checked beforehand. It's really, really important that any forms, medication, um, consent is kind of um, agreed before that visit takes place. Um, some older children may be responsible for administering their own medicine, while staff will also need to be responsible for this with the younger children. It's also very important that you have to record when you have given any form of medication. We know that there's also a grey area around non-prescription medicines, um, particularly things like paracetamol, and sometimes it has been known that older children may routinely carry them on themselves. But it's important that they only carry an, a small quantity for personal use and that staff are, are made aware of this at the beginning. We also need to be aware of any live safeguarding concerns surrounding the children and what implications um, these may have for an overnight stay, especially when, for example, the children have a child protection plan and a social worker assigned to them. They all come with their own needs and it's very important that people who need to know are aware. I think gathering and checking this information can mean talking to a number of colleagues in a school, certainly the DSL, um, the school office or admin team, and those with pastoral oversight for the children, like heads of year or form tutors too. It's important that all the information is gathered and there if we need to refer to it. Thank you, Hayley. Yeah, very, very interesting. I'm going to go back to Mick. So Mick, is there anything additional from your perspective that schools must be thinking about at the planning stage? Yes, thanks, Steve. So Hayley's mentioned a few really important things there, but there are a few other things that perhaps don't, um, don't occur on a day-to-day -day basis in school. So firstly, we need to consider what the staffing team for the visit will be. So does the gender of this team reflect the gender of the children? That's definitely best practice. So if it's a mixed group with boys and girls in, uh, then the staffing team should be mixed ideally too. Another thing we need to think about is if the school team, the school staff in the team might be assisted by any adults that aren't part of the, the normal school staff. So for example, parents or other volunteers. And then we need to be aware that overnight stays are considered as regulated activity. So that's defined by the Working Together to Safeguard Children uh, statutory guidance. And with a residential visit, anyone that's part of the overnight team 
should have an enhanced DBS check in place. Secondly, it's, it's vital that schools identify individuals to act as emergency contacts throughout a visit. So that can bring additional considerations if the visit extends uh, over the weekend or into the school holidays. As that person or those those people need to be available to support the staff team who are leading the visit 24 hours a day, seven days a week through the visit. And those emergency contacts should be senior members of staff who themselves have got experience of leading visits and who can offer support and advice to the, the staff team should they need it. But also importantly, they need to be able to contact other key individuals in the school, such as the DSL or the head teacher. And they also need to be aware of the school's emergency plan and how they can implement that should that be needed. And then finally, it's really important that both parents and children themselves understand the nature of the visit they're going to be participating in. So that can be communicated through meetings, but also through letters. And the information we need to make sure we're communicating there includes the, the type of accommodation that the party is staying in. So perhaps things like whether the school have sole occupancy or whether that accommodation will be shared with another school or more than one school or even members of the public. Uh, we need to be very specific about what activities are involved in the visit and any behavioural expectations. So particularly around privacy and sleeping areas there and with older children emphasising that alcohol and drugs and weapons aren't to be taken on the visit or bought during the visit. And we should also make parents aware of the, the types of supervision that will be planned during the visit too, as it's uh, inevitable during any overnight visit that children won't be directly supervised 24 hours a day by a member of staff. However, we, we do need to remember our duty of care there, so there must always be supervision in place. But the nature of that can and does vary. And there will be periods of what we call indirect supervision. So that's when children might be in their bedrooms or sleeping areas. But also perhaps with older children, there might be periods of remote supervision planned. So that's when they might be carrying out activities in small groups with no member of staff actually physically directly accompanying them. But during those times, they need to be able to locate a member of staff or contact a member of staff uh, as needed. And if that's something that's planned, then we should be making parents aware of that. Finally here, I should just add that there's no expectation on schools and school staff to have what's known as waking overnight supervision in place. So that means a member of staff awake right through the night. Uh, so that's not an expectation, but we do need to make sure that children understand the expectations on them overnight and that they know where to find the relevant member of staff if they need to. But otherwise, it's sufficient normally to supervise them until they're all in their bedrooms and settled in bed and relatively quiet. I think it's really important that we remember here that staff need their sleep too and have to be able to really function effectively throughout visits. And especially when those visits are longer and staff are away for a number of nights. Uh, and those adults can have additional responsibilities too, such as driving minibuses or leading activities. So we all need our sleep and it's important to make sure that staff get their sleep too.
So, Steve, that's um, enough from Haley and I for a second. Perhaps with your e-safety background, can I ask you what schools ought to be thinking about from your perspective uh, when they're planning visits? Yeah, thanks, Mick. I suppose the obvious areas that I that certainly can cause an issue is the use of mobile phones, as obviously these have got built-in still cameras, they've got video cameras built into them as well, and of course the use of social media, which can spread messages and images quickly to a large audience. Schools need to think if it's appropriate really for children to bring their mobile phones, or even if they can actually stop them bringing their mobile phones. And if children can bring them, what's the expectation uh, needs to be, you know, to put in place uh, to manage their use? It might include, for instance, not taking images in bedrooms or changing areas uh, or underlining what is OK and not OK to post on social media accounts. They could be reminded, of course, about the school's acceptable use policy uh, that that is in place at the school. And the staff team also need to make sure that they aren't taking or storing images of children on their own personal phones, but are using school devices instead to safeguard themselves. It can be really useful, though, to have a mobile phone, clearly, when children are being remotely supervised. So they then contact staff members if needed. But again, staff should be using school owned devices for this rather than sharing their own personal mobile numbers with children. Mick. What should school staff be thinking about when they arrive at their accommodation, whether that is a campsite, a hotel act activity centre or some other type of accommodation? OK, so there are a number of things that staff not, might need to be aware of, and these obviously depend on the type of accommodation. But our pre-visit checks beforehand should really include confirming that the accommodation that we're intending to stay in is suitable and secure. And there are a number of accreditation schemes that help to give us those assurances. But just on arrival, we should check some practical things too. So uh, things like window opening on floors above the ground floor, is that restricted so that children can't climb out? Uh, and sometimes on the ground floor too, that might be important. We need to check or confirm that rooms don't have external balconies that children can access that external doors can be locked as necessary to keep those secure. And also that doors to rooms can be locked or opened as appropriate to the, the age of the children. So we need to look at uh, whether children have keys, whether there are keys left in the doors there, key cards, or whether those need to be cared for by members of staff. And it's also really important that the escape route in the event of a fire is clearly marked and that everyone understands where the fire exits are. So having a fire drill there is, is really good practice too when we arrive. Yeah, all, all important stuff, Mick, thanks for that. So I'm gonna move on to Jill now. So if the school staff have a safeguarding concern during a visit or a child makes a disclosure, Jill, could you tell us how the staff should respond in those situations? The general principle is that um, they should respond in the same way and follow exactly the same procedures as they would if they were actually inside school. Uh, the first priority is obviously the child or the children. Um, as they need, they should keep a written record of any information that's disclosed, anything said, anything done, remembering body marks um, to body maps, sorry, to take a, a note of any injuries, noting the times and the dates of this. They may need to also get some advice from the designated safeguarding lead, especially if they are not on the trip. 
uh, passing the information on. There is a general rule of thumb um, that the social care that would actually deal with it, the ones that take the lead is the host uh, local authority, so i.e. where the trip is, but they would always, always consult with the home local authority as to who's best place to take on the inquiry. I think it's good practice as well as referring to the host local authority to also inform the home local authority as well and they can act between each other and communicate and decide who's best placed um, to deal with that and like all these things as well if you can't get hold of them nine to five hours and it's outside of those hours then it's always outside hours it's actually a good plan before you go on a trip to actually look at the local authority where you're actually going to be residing get a note of those numbers and of course, in extreme cases, you would actually call the police in the same way that you normally would. And the police would then liaise with the social care. It's also possible that there could be small concerns that might come up and actions that need doing um, for a child that's already got a social worker back in the home local authority. And again, as Haley has said, if you've prepared and taken those details with you or you have at hand the, the designated safeguarding leads number, then that is a conversation that you can have. Uh, it may also be that there's an allegation or an incident that's taken place that involves a member of staff. And just remember, in the same way that you would if you were at school, you may need to do a LADO referral. It's really important that any safeguarding concern that the visit leader doesn't delay just because they're on a trip. It needs to be dealt with as if it was within the school working day. Thank you for that, Jill. Now, we've already talked about some of the benefits of overnight stays and the different types of supervision that might be in place to manage these. But I can see that there, there are some areas of these visits and of the supervision that could potentially place staff at risk too. So, Hayley, with your school leadership experience, perhaps you could talk about staff conduct and how staff can safeguard themselves too. Thanks, Steve. And some really important points that really need covering here. Um, so all the adults accompanying any visit are in a position of trust and need to make sure that their behaviour remains professional at all times and it stays within professional boundaries. Teachers and other adults are clearly responsible for their own actions and behaviours and must try to avoid any kind of conduct where their motivation or their intentions could be questioned or misconstrued. They should operate and be seen to operate in an open and transparent way. I think the, the obvious consideration for an overnight visit is around the sleeping areas, the bedrooms or dormitories and the bathroom areas too. Many staff may need to go into these areas on occasion, so we do need to think carefully about when and how we do that. Staff should consider whether they actually need to go into a room or whether they can communicate effectively enough from an open doorway. But if they do have to go into a room, and I'm thinking of times, particularly with younger children, where it will be unavoidable. They should always knock before entering the room. They should wedge the door open while they remain in the room and definitely avoid going into a room where there's only one child. Um, I think being accompanied by a second staff member is a really good safeguard here, too. With older children, it's critical that staff members should avoid entering the rooms of children of the opposite sex, as I'm sure we can all see the pitfalls there. For their motivation to be questioned or malicious allegations to be made. It's about, yes, we want to protect the children and the young people, but we also need to make sure we're protecting ourselves. 
Yeah, thanks for that, Hayley. Uh, some important stuff there. So, Mick, do you have anything else to add on the subject of staff keeping themselves safe? Yes, thanks, Steve. So, uh, Hayley's already mentioned professional behaviour and professional boundaries there, and, and maintaining those is clearly really important. And, and you mentioned some of the aspects earlier around social media too. So, uh, I just want to highlight that adults should be aware of any expectations on them that might come from their uh, school's staff code of conduct. And we all need to remember that if we're accompanying a visit, leading a visit, then we have a duty of care for those children on the visit at all times. And so that even if our staff team's big enough so that some members of the team can uh, have some downtime perhaps, which we can we can sometimes enable that to happen uh, with a, a rotor amongst the staff. But uh, even if that is the case, then we all need to remember still that uh, we need to maintain our professional behaviour at all times. And really that's to protect not just the reputations of the staff themselves, but also that of the, the school as well. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mick. That's really quite important, isn't it? So really, that brings us to the end of this podcast uh, on safeguarding on residential educational visits. But just before we go, Mick, Haley, uh, and Jill, can you recommend anywhere to look for further information around these areas? Haley, you can go first on that one. Um, I would say always um, sort of regularly check the LSCP websites. There are often a range of different courses that are available um, which discuss, you know, points that we've covered today and um, areas of expertise around outdoor visits um, and, and clearly to make use of Mick, as I'm sure he will come on to mention um, in a bit. Uh, but definitely just just definitely have a look at the site. The courses are free and uh, readily updated. Yeah, thanks for that, Hayley. What about you, Mick? Any closing thoughts? Uh, yes, just one thing really. I, I would highlight the National Guidance website. So this is guidance for all sorts of educational visits. That's maintained by the Outdoor Education Advisors Panel. And there's a whole wealth of information on there on just about every aspect of planning and leading educational visits. So that's available at uh, the website OEAPNG. Uh, so that stands for Outdoor Education Advisors Panel National Guidance oeapng.info and uh, just a little closing thought for me as well uh, there are many useful websites out there that offer parents and school staff guidance on the use of mobile devices uh, whilst they're away one particular good site is internetmatters.org this site has a multitude of great online safety devices including how to set up parental controls on all types of devices they even include short videos to explain what to do so well worth a visit so, Hayley, Mick and Jill, thank you so much for your time and explaining so clearly and expertly on this very important subject. And can I thank you, Steve, as well, for being with us and presenting this podcast as well. It's much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. And I look forward to speaking to you all again where we can discuss another safeguarding topic. So, everybody, thank you for listening to the Cognitive Education Untapped podcast. If you liked this session, join me next time when we will discuss more safeguarding topics. To find out more about Cognus, visit our website at cognus.org.uk. Thank you. <laughs>